1: Find First Peter chapter three, round about page twelve hundred and nineteen or so, depending on which version of the church Bible you may be using. Or if you're using your own Bible, it will presumably just fall open at first Peter chapter three, and we're going to read there first Peter chapter three from verse eight through to verse twelve. We last did this nine months ago, um, and uh, since there has been this hiatus of preaching from 1 Peter, uh, people from outside of our church have been creating their own rumors and explanations for this, which have varied, I gather, from me being taken secretly to the United States for experimental therapeutic treatment Two, having left the free church and decided to start an independent church. Two, my favorite one, which is the most obvious one that David Roberts and I just fell out with one another. (laughs) Uh, None of the above, I assure you, is true, although David, uh, ceasing to be moderator of our denomination's General Assembly tomorrow and deciding tonight he's going to become a prophet There is still the opportunity for us to fall out, but I'm sure that won't happen. But really, I thought we'd just go back to this because David is often quoting from uh, John Calvin, the great Genevan reformer. And as some of you will know, in uh, 1538, John Calvin was kicked out of Geneva. Uh, The city fathers decided they'd had enough of him, um, and they said he, he was leaving as soon as they could find a replacement. Uh, took them a day to think further about it, and they said, just leave, don't bother with a replacement. And then three years later, they begged him to return. And you can imagine the electricity in the room when he mounted uh, the rickety steps into the pulpit at St. Peter's Church in Geneva, and essentially said, now you remember the last time I was preaching, we were in and he simply went on with the next verse. <laughs> so, that's about as near to John Calvin as I'm likely to get. So, let's read First Peter chapter 3 and from verse 8. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For, and he quotes from Psalm 34, whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer but the face of the lord is against those who do evil of all the books in the new testament first peter is the new testament's manual for evangelism and apologetics indeed it's in the next section that the word apologetics appears and in first peter chapter 3 Verse 15, we find what for Christian apologists has become one of the great foundations of their activity. It's a manual for evangelism and apologetics, but it's rather a different one from the manuals that are produced today. Apologetic manuals, characteristically filled with how to approach the non Christian and how to reason and argue and explain and defend the Christian faith. And Peter encourages us to do that. Evangelistic manuals often telling us how to communicate the gospel to a non-Christian world or how to get people interested enough in the gospel to open a door for you to be able to explain the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. But those are not really the approach of the Apostle Peter. The approach of the Apostle Peter, in a sense, is more basic than that, not so much techniques and arguments, but the evangelistic power and the apologetic significance of the transformed life of believers living together in the Christian church. Of course, Peter is speaking to people who are either already experiencing persecution or soon will. He isn't so far from the day when Christians will be despised and demeaned, when the Romans famously would cry, send the Christians to the lion, which of course drew from the great apologist, the Tertullian, the witty reply, what all the Christians to one lion They were becoming, as they were again called in a demeaning way, the third race of men. They were different. And indeed, one of the things that Peter is teaching these Christians is they are indeed different. They are aliens, and they are strangers. He will go on to say that people in the world regard you as strange they don't understand what makes you tick. They can't fathom why it is that you don't live the same way they do. And for Peter, that is one of the keys to Christian apologetics and Christian evangelism, that we are different, that we are strange to people. And it's that very strangeness that draws their attention It's that very strangeness that questions the way in which they themselves live and what they believe, and therefore has enormous evangelistic power. And so, instead of lamenting the difficulty of living in a pre-Christian world, or if he were speaking to us today, lamenting the difficulties of living in a post-Christian world, he is saying to these Christians, this is a great opportunity for the gospel. This is a time to live out the gospel, to be unashamed of being different, to be willing to suffer, and to understand that this gospel that you believe, this Christ who has become your Savior, is able to keep you and empower you and to use you for His glory just at such a time as this. And in this section of his letter, he has been describing the way in which Christians live in the varied dimensions of their lives, how they live as citizens in the state, how they live in the workaday world, some of them masters, some of them slaves, how they live in the domestic scene as husbands and wives. And now he's rounding all this off and creating a platform for what is about to come. This is why he begins this little section finally, not because he's come to the end of the letter, but because he's come to, as it were, complete the circle of this teaching about the different lifestyle of the Christian in every sphere in which he or she lives. And now he's not just addressing slaves one group in the church, or husbands, another group in the church, or wives, another group in the church. He says, finally, now, verse 8, all of you. And then he does something very striking as he goes on. He says, there are two things now I want to teach you. The first is, in this world that is hostile to the Christian gospel, we need to refresh our understanding of how we live in the family of Christ. And the second thing we need to understand is how we are to live in a world that is hostile to the gospel. So, in a sense, how we are to live in the world that is friendly to the gospel in order that we may witness to the world that is hostile to the gospel. And he does something very unusual, something that can't really be captured in the English language and make much sense. He just suddenly says, finally says, all of you, finally all of you. And with a kind of machine gun fire, he lists five words, no verb, just five words, if I were to try and speak a sentence that just had five words, it would suggest that the people I was speaking to would be able to fill in the verbs. They would be familiar enough with what I'm saying that they would understand the whole sentence just by these five words. And this is undoubtedly true here. Peter is not teaching these Christians something new He's reminding them of things that are absolutely basic to our life together as fellow believers. And so, it's translated with a verb, be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate, be humble, live in harmony, even although there are no verbs. And so, he just holds up these words. It's almost as though he was teaching children in a Sunday school. The first word is unity and harmony. The second word is sympathy. The third word is brotherly affection or love. The fourth word is tender mercy. And the fifth word is humility. Those of you who are interested in the structure of literature, Uh, might be interested to know that these statements form what's called a chiasm after the the Greek letter chi. That is a a structured sentence in which the first and the last statements match one another, the second and the penultimate statement match one another, and then right at the center is perhaps the thing of greatest significance… And if you see that, that's very much the way the Hebrew minds seem to enjoy writing with these patterns and designs. shouldn't surprise us, actually, that the Jewish tradition has produced so many great musicians and so many great mathematicians. Design and structure. And what lies at the heart here is this brotherly love. The sense that believers have that we we share the same Father, that we have boldness of access to him, that we call him Abba Father, just as Jesus called him Abba Father. And he's really saying that's what that's what drives everything in the fellowship of the church. We have been born new he says in chapter 1, to a living hope. We share the same birth. We share the same spiritual DNA. We share the same elder brother, Jesus Christ. We share the same heavenly Father. And then wonder of wonders, the Father and the Son have sent their Holy Spirit into our hearts to make our hearts their home. And there is only one Holy Spirit. And so, we are bound together closely in fellowship, in mutual love, and especially the sense that we all look to one and the same elder brother as our Savior, our Lord, our Master, and our example. And what spreads out from that in a sense, he begins at the beginning at the most obvious feature, and then he ends with what underlies that obvious feature. He wants us, he says, to live in harmony with one another. You know, that's one of the things in a living church that, that people notice. They, they come in from the outside. They may not understand the Christian gospel, They may not like what they think is the Christian gospel. They may not actually like what is the gospel. But in a living Christian church, there is one thing they will find that they will not find anywhere else in the world, and it becomes more and more obvious in our world. They will not find this family harmony. And you notice that family harmony is rooted in our sympathy. In the sense that we are a real spiritual fraternity, that we are bound together with tender mercy. And all of it, as uh, Peter urges these Christians to remember, is rooted in humility. We count others as more important than ourselves. It's interesting in the in the ancient world I happened just happened to be re-reading Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics the other day and came across his section on some of these virtues. And it's striking and and very typical of the world, uh, influenced by Hellenistic philosophy, that actually the great virtue is pride. The great virtue is to be somebody that you can be proud of and to be proud of being that somebody. And so, in antiquity, the virtue of humility was was despised and demeaned. Isn't it interesting that some of these great minds could not understand that pride can never produce harmony? It can never produce unity. It can never produce fraternity. It can never produce sympathy. It can only produce self-centeredness. And when you stand back from these five virtues of the Christian life, you, you sense something. You sense this a great deal in this first letter, that even when he doesn't mention the Savior's name, Peter is always seeing things in terms of the Savior. This is what he'd seen in Jesus. This is what he'd seen Jesus create. This is what he had seen Jesus so wonderfully fulfill in his own life. And so, this is a very beautiful statement, beautiful statement of what the church is like and how different it is from the world. And because it has this difference, it surprises the world. This is why it's so important for us not to think of ourselves as isolated individual Christian witnesses, because as isolated individual Christian witnesses, very little of this may emerge. But when unbelievers encounter this in the in the communities of God's people, be it in the university or wherever we work, or as we encourage them to come among us. They taste something they've never tasted before. They see something. They're surprised. The rug is pulled from under their feet. They're surprised and astonished sometimes. And what we discover is that they will hate the gospel more because it produces what they cannot produce. Or they come to understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ is precisely what they need. This is why I think it must be true throughout the ages and needs to be true again today that God's fundamental evangelistic agency is the church, is the people of God. Don't we find that in the Acts of the Apostles? It was the the way in which what was taught in the gospel was exhibited in the church that at one and the same time made people feel, I don't think I could possibly belong there. And at the same time, as we're told in Acts chapter 5, we're drawn in by the power of the gospel that they saw in the lives of these Christian believers. And yet, Peter recognizes for all the desirability of this, which at the end of the day is just the desirability of the Lord Jesus. He was so good. He was so gracious. He was so desirable, so admirable. He went about doing good and he was so crucified. And Peter is saying, we cannot expect anything less. And so, on the one hand, as we refresh our sense of what it means for us to live together as the church family, we also need to be instructed in how we are to live and respond in a world that shows such hostility. And he comes back here to a lesson that all the apostles teach us that in living the Christian life, in the church and outside of the church, there always needs to be negative and positive. We walk the Christian walk on two feet. We walk the Christian walk by denying what belongs to the flesh, and we walk the Christian life by responding positively to what belongs to Jesus Christ. And this is why the New Testament letters are so full of negatives and positives and why they always go together. If we are only for the positives, we will unbalance on one side and fall down. If we are only for the negatives, we will unbalance and fall down on the other side. And so, you'll notice that what Peter does balances both the put-off and the put-on, the die and the live. As to putting off, his principle is this. The Christian lives in a world that may be hostile to him, hostile to the church, but the Christian never responds to the world's hostility as a mirror image of that hostility. I say never. Sadly, that's not true, is it? Uh, we've sometimes seen it on our televisions, eh? the, the ungodly on one side of the street and the godly on the other side of the street. And if you didn't know what was on the placards, if it was in some language you couldn't understand, if you turned down the sound so you didn't hear what they were shouting and just looked at the faces… They would be mirror images of one another. And Peter is saying, that is is not the way of the gospel. The way the church, the way the believer responds to a hostile world is by being a mirror image, but by being a mirror image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, he says, you notice, in, in staggering words, really, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, that's the way of the flesh, but respond with blessing. It's staggering. Respond to the world's curses with the gospel's blessing. And we we are a world awash with curses, The Saturday paper I get with its big glossy magazine and the interviews with the great words is full of asterisks. Angry spirits, and often angry spirits against God and His Word and His law and His ways and the gospel and other people. And how does the Christian respond? The Christian responds, you see, because the Christian believer, and if you're a younger Christian, the sooner you get this, the happier you will be, I promise. As soon as you get that it's not ultimately about you, it's about the Lord Jesus, then you will understand that since the Lord Jesus responded to curses, with blessing. You too, who belong to the Lord Jesus, you who cannot be destroyed by these curses because you're Christ and you're in Christ. And as Peter has said in the first chapter, you're secure in Christ. You can respond with blessing. You can stand and smile to yourself, and say, you really have no idea who I am. You don't understand that I don't belong merely to this horizontal world of cursing in which you live, but I belong to my Lord Jesus Christ. My true identity is found in Him and in heaven, and I am secure. I am secure enough to respond to your curses with the Lord's blessing, to pray, Lord, Less, to think, Lord, give me the wisdom to know how I can bless this per- person, how I can show gospel grace to this person. Of course, that may harden hearts. The gospel always harden hearts. But cursing will never bring salvation. That's his point. It is as we bless that they they begin to what do they begin to see? They begin to see a little glimmer of the hidden Christ, who when he was cursed, blessed. Some of you, I'm sure, have heard my friend Bill Edgar, uh, teaches apologetics, Westminster Seminary, is a jazz pianist. I think he's maybe been here, has he, David, in Dundee, uh, doing Heaven in a Nightclub. Um, In parenthesis here, we did this in the church I was minister of, and a friend said, what did you call that? Because we're having Bill Edgar do it. I said, Heaven in a Nightclub. And he got a great deal of criticism. I said, what did you call it? He said, Heaven in a Nightclub. I said, did you remember the question mark at the end? Oh, no, I said that was my big mistake. <laughs> Punctuation can be very important in the Christian church. I was with Bill in uh, the Metropolitan Museum in New York. Sounds very grand. We were in the, the dining room. We were having something to eat. Bill went off to get something more, things to drink or to eat or something. And one of those scenes emerged where you, you're bound to have seen what, situations where like five seconds before it happens, you know exactly what's going to happen and there was this woman wandering around in a tra- with a tray, and she was kind of going like this. I thought, she's going to bump straight into Bill. She bumped into him. She turned around, and in a ferocious torrent of German, cursed him to the ground. And Bill, who taught in uh, the south of France, is uh, multilingual. I-, I watched this from a distance, calmly responding to her, in her own language, but in a way that was the absolute contrast of the way she had responded to Him, mirroring Jesus rather than mirroring her. And it was almost as though Bill just kind of grew and grew, and this woman just seemed to shrink as though she had been a balloon that had been punctured. It doesn't always happen that way. The gospel and the grace of the gospel in our hearts can harden the hearts of others. But you see, nothing but the gospel and its grace in our hearts and through our lives is ever going to soften the hearts of others. And this is why Peter is saying, so, he says, you don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. And why do you do it? Well, he's going to give us some reasons this is, you know, the Bible is full of exhortations, but if you, if you hold your nose and go down under the water and stay with the text long enough, you almost always find that those exhortations are grounded in reasons and encouragements and the dynamic and the power to enable you to fulfill the exhortation the Lord is giving to you. And you'll notice that this is exactly what Peter does here. He says, you don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing because. You know, we often, in reading the letters, say, look at that word, therefore. That word, therefore, means there's a Connection between what is about to be said and its foundation, and you always ought to pause when you see the word "because." So, why are we to do this? What are the encouragements to do it? Well, he says, "Because you were called to this, that you might yourself inherit a blessing." Interesting, isn't it that it, 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 in uh, in the gospel it's Simon Peter in the gospel, who struggles with Jesus' encouragement to us to forgive people. And he says, how many times have I got to do this? Seven times? Would seven times be enough? Seventy times seven, says Jesus. And then you remember he tells the story of the man who has pardoned a pittance that he owes to his master pardoned a huge amount, I beg his pardon that he owes to his master, and he goes out to, to one of his workmates, and he almost strangles him to get a pittance out of him. And Jesus says, that man hasn't tasted forgiveness. You see, we can so easily fo- we, can, we will be challenged on this, won't we? During, this, is, this is bound to happen to some of us during this week. Someone is really going to get at us and we're going to strangle them. And Jesus says, but you've lost the plot line of the Bible. All all this this man is doing, this woman is doing, is losing the head because they, actually because they don't like Christ in you. But think of what Christ did for those who didn't like Christ in him. Father, forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing, this, this rage, this anger, this antagonism, this what they're doing because they're blind. You ever wondered if that prayer of Jesus was answered? We're, we're quick to apply that to ourselves, aren't we? He's forgiven us, but that prayer... He, he wasn't praying about you in that prayer. He was praying about this pile of people round about him. Uh, but when we turn over to the Acts of the Apostles, 3,000 pardoned on the day of Pentecost, priests crowding into the church. Because the Lord who was cursed blessed, you see. And this is what Peter is saying. It's exactly the same thing. He doesn't mention Jesus by name, but Jesus is in his mind. You were called to blessing. You have been pardoned all your sins, the mountain of your sins, your anger against God, your rebellion against his word, what you have done to others, what you have done to yourself that you owed to the Lord. He's pardoned all your sins, every single one of them He's removed as far as the east is from the west. It's a small thing. Therefore, when this, when this floods my mind, it's a, it's a small thing for me to respond to those who curse by blessing. So, He's saying to us, you, you do this because of what you have received from the Lord. And you do this also, he says, and this is why he quotes the 34th Psalm written by David about a time of great difficulty, persecution in his own life. You do this because it's actually the best way to live, it's real freedom. And this is why he says, "If you want to love life and see good days, you keep your tongue from evil in response, on your lips from deceit, you turn from evil, and you do good and you seek peace, and you pursue it because because you're not the prisoner of the person who opposes the gospel. Here is for example the Priests who spit upon Jesus, the soldiers with all the authority of Rome behind them, who mock Jesus and despise Jesus and crucify Jesus. How is Jesus able to sustain this? Because He's free. He's His Father's. He knows that His life is at the very epicenter of his Father's will. And so, no matter what man may do to him, man cannot destroy but only advance his Father's purpose in his life. That's a great thing to know, isn't it? Someone really messing you up. To be able to have that little Christian giggle in your heart that says, "'You think you're destroying me, pal?' You have no idea that your efforts at destruction are simply part of the Lord's plans in my life to sanctify me, to humble me, to make me sense more how wonderful it is. I have Jesus who went through far worse than this, and Jesus is my friend and my Savior. And then he says there's another reason. It's because it's the pathway to to experiencing the blessing of God. He says, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. That, that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean the, the metallic, the always, I am always right kind of individual. The righteous person, um, remember the little family into which Jesus was brought, how Zechariah and Elizabeth are described as Righteous. Not because they're the last people you would ever want to have have as your friends, but because you, you would die to have people like that as your friends. You might even think you had died and gone to heaven to have people like that as your friends. Righteous in the Bible is a wonderfully warm word. And Peter is saying, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are attentive to their prayer." whereas the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Remember when I first became a Christian, occasionally I would have a meal in what you might think of as a kind of old-fashioned Christian family where, you know, in the dining room there would be the text, Thou God seest me, and the children would be supposed to shake and they're Oh, you know, God's watching me. He'll get you. It's not like that, is it? It's more, like the, it's more like the youngster who's made his way into a football team or some other team, and his dad says he'll come along and watch him, and he, he scores a goal, and first thing he does is he, he turns around to see if his father's eyes are on him. Did you see that, Dad? We've got a picture, a photograph of one of our boys on a baseball field in uh, Pennsylvania. And he's he's made it, I think, to first base. And he's turning round to see if my eyes are on him. And that's how it is. It's so wanting to live to please him that the most precious thing in the world to us is to know that he's smiling on us, that he he doesn't have to turn His face away from us because we've embarrassed Him or, or shamed Him. And He's watching. He's watching. He's watching us. And so we'll always be safe. We'll always, always be safe. And you see again at the heart of this, there's. it's almost as though it's almost as though Peter's teaching is out here before us and and walking behind it, everything he says, there's there's the shadow of Jesus. Because you see, Peter understands that the Father's face is directed towards the righteous because his Father's face was turned away from the Savior. And so, in a sense, we end tonight the way we ended in the morning. It's because he was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities, because the chastisement to bring us peace was upon him, and with his stripes we have been healed. But like sheep, we have gone astray and turned everyone to his own way. It's because the Father laid upon Jesus the iniquities of us all that the curse of God's judgment fell upon him so that the Father's face might smile upon us and blessing upon blessing upon blessing would flow to us, that we are able to live with a sense of poise and liberty and joy in a world that has so fast become a post-Christian world. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. And Peter is teaching us that's what he's doing. He's doing it through everything through the blessings of the fellowship and through the opposition of the world. He is bringing us to glory. And even the opposition he will use to polish our graces and to make us shine for him in this world and in the next. This, as Peter is saying, really is the good life. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ and for the gospel and its power and for your grace and love. We praise some of us, perhaps many of us, will be challenged during the week by hostile people. We pray that you would give us grace not to focus our eyes upon their anger, but to look to the one who stands behind them looking at us with his face and eyes towards us. And as we look to him, we pray that we may mirror him. And as we are cursed, we pray that we may be those who bless and that those who curse may themselves be brought to find this blessing in our wonderful Savior. We pray it in His name. Amen.
0: Thank you you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee if you found this sermon has been helpful to you please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk for information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity at solace cpcorg once again that website address is solas Python C P C Thanks for listening.